Good morning, world. This is The Unplace. My name is Daniel Erickson. I am your host and voice. Last week, we met Silvina Ocampa, who is very dear to come and visit us from Buenos Aires, and I hope that she can come again if she finds the time to be awake. Today, we're going to get into a very long and naughty chapter of dear old Carlo Marx. But before that, we are going to read the beginning of The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. They say when trouble comes close ranks, and so the white people did. But we were not in their ranks. The Jamaican ladies had never approved of my mother, because she was pretty like pretty self, Christophine said. She was my father's second wife, far too young for him, they thought, and worse still, a Martinique girl. When I asked her why so few people came to see us, she told me that the road from Spanish Town to Culibri Estate, where we lived, was very bad, and that road repairing was now a thing of the past. My father, visitors, horses, feeling safe in bed, all belonged to the past. Another day I heard her talking to Mr. Luttrell, our neighbor and her only friend. Of course, they have their own misfortunes, still waiting for the, this compensation the English promised when the Emancipation Act was passed. Some will wait for a long time. How could she know that Mr. Luttrell would be the first who grew tired of waiting? One calm evening he shot his dog, swam out to sea, and was gone for always. No agent came from England to look after his property. Nelson's Rest, it was called, and strangers from Spanish Town rode up to gossip and discuss the tragedy. Live at Nelson's Rest, not for love or money, an unlucky place. Mr. Luttrell's house was left empty, shutters banging in the wind. Soon the black folk said it was haunted, they wouldn't go near it. And no one came near us. I got used to a solitary life, but my mother still planned and hoped... Perhaps she had to hope every time she passed a looking-glass. She still rode about every morning, not caring that the black people stood about in groups to jeer at her, especially after her riding clothes grew shabby. They noticed clothes. They know about money. Then one day, very clearly, I saw her horse lying down under the frangipani tree. I went up to him, but he was not sick. He was dead, and his eyes were black with flies. I ran away and did not speak of it, for I thought if I told no one it might not be true. But later that day, Godfrey found him. He had been poisoned. Now we are marooned, my mother said. Now what will become of us? Godfrey said, I can't watch the horse day, night and day. I too old now. When the old time go, let it go. No use to grab at it. The Lord made no distinction between black and white. Black and white, the same for him. Rest yourself in peace, for the righteous are not forsaken. But she couldn't. She was young. How could she not try for all the things that had gone so suddenly, so without warning? You're blind when you want to be blind, she said ferociously, and you're deaf when you want to be deaf. The old hypocrite, she kept saying. He knew what they were going to do. The devil prince of this world, Godfrey said. But this world don't last so long for a mortal man. Now we're going to read section three of part one of Das Kapital by Karl Marx. The form of value or exchange value. Commodities come into the world in the shape of use values, articles, or goods, such as iron, linen, corn, etc. This is their plain, homely, bodily form. They are, however, commodities, only because they are something twofold, both objects of utility and, at the same time, depositories of value. 
They manifest themselves, therefore, as commodities, or have the form of commodities, only insofar as they have two forms, a physical or natural form and a value form. The reality of the value of commodities differs in this respect from Dane Quickly, that we don't know where to have it. The value of commodities is the very opposite of the coarse materiality of their substance. Not an atom of matter enters into its composition. Turn and examine a single commodity by itself, as we will, yet insofar as it remains an object of value, it seems impossible to grasp it. If, however, we bear in mind that the value of commodities is a purely social reality, and that they acquire this reality only insofar as they are expressions or embodiments of one identical social substance, viz. human labor. It follows, as a matter of course, that value can only manifest itself in the social relation of commodity to commodity. In fact, we started from exchange value, or the exchange relation of commodities, in order to get at the value that lies hidden behind it. We must now return to this form under which value first appeared to us. Everyone knows, if he knows nothing else, that commodities have a value form common to them all, and presenting a marked contrast with the varied bodily forms of their use values. I mean their money form. Here, however, a task is set us, the performance of which has never yet even been attempted by bourgeois economy, the task of tracing the genesis of this money form, of developing the expression of value implied in the value relations of commodities from its simplest, almost imperceptible outline to the dazzling money form. By doing this, we shall, at the same time, solve the riddle presented by money. The simplest value relation is evidently that of one commodity to some one other commodity of a different kind. Hence, the relation between the values of two commodities supplies us with the simplest expression of the value of a single commodity. Subsection A, elementary or accidental form of value. X commodity A equals Y commodity B, or X commodity A is worth Y commodity B. 20 yards of linen equals one coat, or 20 yards of linen are worth one coat. Sub-subsection 1, the two poles of the expression of value, relative form and equivalent form. The whole mystery of the form of value lies hidden in this elementary form. Its analysis, therefore, is our real difficulty. Here, two different kinds of commodities, in our example, the linen and the coat, evidently play two different parts. The linen expresses its value in the coat. The coat serves as the material in which that value is expressed. The former plays an active, the latter a passive part. The value of the linen is represented as relative value, or appears in relative form. The coat officiates as equivalent, or appears in equivalent form. The relative form and the equivalent form are two intimately connected, mutually dependent, and inseparable elements of the expression of value but, at the same time, are mutually exclusive, antagonistic extremes, i.e. poles of the same expression. They are allotted respectively to the two different commodities brought into relation by that expression. It is not possible to express the value of linen in linen, 
20 yards of linen equals 20 yards of linen is no expression of value. On the contrary, such an equation merely says that 20 yards of linen are nothing else than 20 yards of linen, a definite quantity of the use value linen. The value of the linen can therefore be expressed only relatively, i.e., in some other commodity. The relative form of the value of the linen presupposes, therefore, the presence of some other commodity, here the coat, under the form of an equivalent. On the other hand, the commodity that figures as the equivalent cannot at the same time assume the relative form. The second commodity is not the one whose value is expressed. Its function is merely to serve as the material in which the value of the first commodity is expressed. No doubt the expression 20 yards of linen equals one coat or 20 yards of linen are worth one coat implies the opposite relation. One coat equals 20 yards of linen or one coat is worth 20 yards of linen. But in that case, I must reverse the equation in order to express the value of the coat relatively. And so soon as I do that, the linen becomes the equivalent instead of the coat. A single commodity cannot, therefore, simultaneously assume in the same expression of value both forms. The very polarity of these forms makes them mutually exclusive. Whether, then, a commodity assumes the relative form or the opposite equivalent form depends entirely upon its accidental position in the expression of value, that is, upon whether it is the commodity whose value is being expressed or the commodity in which value is being expressed. Subsection 2. The relative form of value. A. The nature and import of this form. In order to discover how the elementary expression of the value of a commodity lies hidden in the value relation of two commodities, we must, in the first place, consider the latter entirely apart from its quantitative aspect. The usual mode of procedure is generally the reverse, and in the value relation nothing, nothing is seen but the proportion between definite quantities of two different sorts of commodities that are considered equal to each other. It is apt to be forgotten that the magnitudes of different things can be compared quantita quantitatively only when those magnitudes are expressed in terms of the same unit. It is only as expressions of such a unit that they are the same of the same denomination, and therefore commensurable. Whether 20 yards of linen equals one coat, or equal 20 coats, or equals X coats, that is, whether a given quantity of linen is worth few or many coats, every such statement implies that the linen and coats, as magnitudes of value, are expressions of the same unit, things of the same kind. Linen equal coat is the basis of the equation. But the two commodities who ident whose identity of quality is thus assumed do not play the same part. It is only the value of the linen that is expressed. And how? By its reference to the coat as its equivalent, as something that can be exchanged for it. In this relation, the code is the mode or of existence of value, is value embodied, for only as such is it the same as the linen. On the other hand, the linen's own value comes to the front, receives independent expression, for it is only as coat, uh, sorry, for it is only as being value that it is comparable with the coat as a thing of equal value or exchangeable with the coat. To borrow an illustration from chemistry, butyric acid is a different substance from propyl formate, yet both are made up of the same chemical substances, carbon, C, hydrogen, 4, 
at oxygen O, and that too in like proportions, namely C4H8O2. If now we equate butyric acid to propyl formate, then in the first place, propyl formate would be, in this relation, merely a form of existence of C4H8O2. And in the second place, we should be stating that butyric acid also consists of C4H8O2. Therefore, by thus equating the two substances, expression would be given to their chemical composition, while their different physical forms would be neglected. If we say that, as values, commodities are mere congelations of human labor, we reduce them by our analysis, it is true, to the abstraction value. But we ascribe to this value no form apart from their bodily form. It is otherwise in the value relation of one commodity to another. Here, the one stands forth in its character of value by reason of its relation to the other. By making the coat the equivalent of the linen, we equate the labor embodied in the former to that in the latter. Now, it is true that the tailoring which makes the coat is concrete labor of a different sort from the weaving which makes the linen. But the act of equating it to the weaving reduces the tailoring to that which is really equal in two kinds of labor, to their common character of human labor. In this roundabout way, then, the fact is expressed that weaving also, insofar as it weaves value, has nothing to distinguish it from tailoring, and consequently is abstract human labor. It is the expression of equivalence between different sorts of commodities that alone brings into relief the specific character of value-creating labor, and this it does by actually reducing the different varieties of labor embodied in the different kinds of commodities to their common quality of human labor in the abstract. There is, however, something else required beyond the expression of the specific character of the labor of which the value of linen consists. Human labor power in motion, or human labor, creates value, but is not itself value. It becomes value only in its congealed state, when embodied in the form of some object. In order to express the value of the linen as a congelation of human labor, that value must be expressed as having objective existence, as being a something materially different from the linen itself, and yet a something common to the linen and all other commodities. The problem is already solved. When occupying the position of equivalent in the equation of value, the coat ranks qualitatively as the equal of the linen, as something of the same kind, because it is value. In this position, it is a thing in which we see nothing but value, or whose palpable body form represents value. Yet the coat itself, the body of the commodity, coat, is a mere use value. A coat as such no more tells us it is value than does the first piece of linen we take hold of. This shows that when placed in value relation to the linen, the coat signifies more than when out of that relation, just as many a man strutting about in a gorgeous uniform counts for more than when in mufti. In the production of the coat, human labor power in the shape of tailoring must have been actually expended. Human labor is therefore accumulated in it. In this aspect, the coat is a depository of value, but though worn to a thread, it does not let this fact show through. And as equivalent of the linen in the value equation, it exists under this aspect alone, counts therefore as embodied value, as a body that is value. A, for instance, cannot be your majesty to be, unless at the same time majesty in B's eyes assumes the bodily form of A. 
and what is more, with every new father of the people, changes its features, hair, and many other things beside. Hence, in the value equation in which the coat is the equivalent of the linen, the coat officiates as the form of value. The value of the commodity linen is expressed by the bodily form of the commodity coat, the value of one by the use value of the other. As a use value, the linen is something palpably different from the coat. As value, it is the same as the coat, and now has the appearance of a coat. Thus, the linen acquires a value form different from its physical form. The fact that it is value is made manifest by its equality with the coat, just as the sheep's nature of a Christian is shown in his resemblance to the Lamb of God. We see, then, that all our analysis of the value of commodities has already told us, is told us by the linen itself, so soon as it comes into communication with another commodity, the coat. Only it portrays its thoughts in that language with which alone it is familiar, the language of commodities, in order to tell us that its own value is created by labor in its abstract character of human labor. It says that the coat, insofar as it is worth as much as the linen, and therefore is value, consists of the same labor as the linen, in order to inform us that its sublime reality is value, is not the same as its buckram body. It says that value has the appearance of a coat, and consequently, that so far as linen is value, it and the coat are as like as two peas. Let me here remark that the language of commodities has, besides Hebrew, many other more or less correct dialects. The German Wertzein, to be worth, for instance, expresses in a less striking manner than the Romance verbs valere, valer, valoir, that the equating of commodity B to commodity A is commodity A's own mode of expressing its value. value. Paris vaut bien une messe. Paris is certainly worth a mass. By means, therefore, of the value relation expressed in our equation, the bodily form of commodity B becomes the value form of commodity A, or the body of commodity B acts as a mirror to the quality to the value of commodity A. By putting itself in relationship with commodity B as value in propria persona, as the matter of which human labor is made up, the commodity A converts the value in use B into the substance in which to express its A's own value. The value of A, thus expressed in the use value of B, has taken the form of relative value. Sub-subsection B, quantitative determination of relative value. Every commodity whose value it is intended to express, wait, maybe, section, subsection, sub-subsection, this is sub-sub-subsection B, actually. Quantitative determination of relative value. Every commodity whose value it is intended to express is a useful object of given quantity, as 15 bushels of corn or 100 pounds of coffee. And a given quantity of any commodity contains a definite quantity of human labor. The value form must therefore not only express value generally, but also value in definite quantity. Therefore, in the value relation of commodity A to commodity B, of the linen to the coat, not only is the latter as value in general made the equal in quality of the linen, but of a, but a definite quantity of coat, one coat, is made the equivalent of a definite quantity, 20 yards, of linen. The equation 
20 yards of linen equals one coat, or 20 yards of linen are worth one coat, implies that the same quantity of value substance, congealed labor, is embodied in both, that the two commodities have each cost the same amount of labor of the same quantity of labor time. But the labor time necessary for the production of 20 yards of linen or one coat varies with the uh, with every change in the productiveness of weaving or tailoring. We have now to consider the influence of such changes on the quantitative aspect of the relative expression of value. One, let the value of the linen vary, that of the coat remaining constant. If, say, in consequence of the exhaustion of flax-growing soil, the labor time necessary for the production of the linen be doubled, the value of the linen will also be doubled. Instead of the equation 20 yards of linen equals one coat, we should have 20 yards of linen equals two coats, since one coat would now contain only half the labor time embodied in 20 yards of linen. If, on the other hand, in consequence, say, of improved loom, this labor time be reduced by one half, the value of the linen would fall by one half. Consequently, we should have 20 yards of linen equals one half coat. The relative value of commodity A, i.e., of commodity A, i.e., its value expressed in commodity B, rises and falls directly as the value of A, the value of B being supposed constant. Two, let the value of the linen remain constant while the value of the coat varies. If, under these circumstances, in consequence, for instance, of a poor crop of wool, the labor time necessary for the production of a coat becomes doubled, we have instead 20 yards of linen equals one coat, 20 yards of linen equals half a coat. If, on the other hand, the value of the coat sinks by one half, then 20 yards of linen equals two coats. Hence, if the value of commodity A remain constant, its relative value expressed in commodity B rises and falls inversely as the value of B. If we compare the two, the different cases in 1 and 2, we see the, sta the same change of magnitude in relative value may arise from totally opposite causes. Thus, the equation 20 yards of linen equals 1 coat becomes 20 yards of linen equals 2 coats, either because the value of the linen has doubled or because the value of the coat has fallen by one half. And it becomes 20 yards of linen equals one half coat, either because the value of the linen has fallen by one half or because the value of the coat has doubled. Three, let the quantities of labor time respectively necessary for the production of the linen and the coat vary simultaneously in the same direction and in the same proportion. In this case, 20 yards of linen continue equal to one coat, however much their values may have altered. Their change of value is seen as soon as they are compared with a third commodity, whose value has remained constant. If the values of all commodities rose or fell simultaneously, and in the same proportion, their relative values would remain unaltered. Their real change of value would appear from the diminished or increased quantity of commodities produced in a given time. 4. The labor time respectively necessary for the production of the linen and the coat, and therefore the value of these commodities, may simultaneously vary in the same direction, but at unequal rates, or in opposite directions, or in other ways. The effect of all these possible different variations on the relative value of a commodity may be deduced from the results of 1, 2, and 3. Thus, real changes in the magnitude of value are neither unequivocally nor exhaustively reflected in their relative expression, that is, in the equation expressing the magnitude of relative value. The relative value of a commodity may vary, although its value remains constant. Its relative value may remain constant, although its value varies. And finally, 
Simultaneous variations in the magnitude of value and in that of its relative expression by no means necessarily correspond in amount. Subsubsection 3. The equivalent form of value. We have seen that commodity A, the linen, by expressing its value in the use value of a commodity differing in kind, the coat, at the same time impresses upon the latter a specific form of value, namely that of the equivalent. The commodity linen manifests its quality of having a value by the fact that the coat, without having assumed a value form different from its bodily form, is equated to the linen. The fact that the latter, therefore, has a value is expressed by saying that the coat is directly exchangeable with it. Therefore, when we say that a commodity is in the equivalent form, we express the fact that it is directly exchangeable with other commodities. When one commodity, such as a coat, serves as the equivalent of another, such as linen, and coats consequently acquire the characteristic property of being directly exchangeable with linen, we are far from knowing in what proportion the two are exchangeable. The value of the linen being given in magnitude, that proportion depends on the value of the coat, whether the coat serves as the equivalent and the linen as relative value, or the linen as the equivalent and the coat as relative value. The magnitude of the coat's value is determined independently of its value form by the labor time necessary for its production. But whenever the coat assumes in the equation, uh, but whenever the coat assumes in the equation of value the position of equivalent, its value acquires no quantitative expression. On the contrary, the commodity coat now figures only as a definite quantity of some article. For instance, 40 yards of linen are worth, what? Two coats. Because the commodity coat here plays the part of equivalent because the use value coat, as opposed to the linen, figures as an embodiment of value. Therefore, a definite number of coats suffices to express the definite quantity of value in the linen. Two coats may therefore express the quantity of value of 40 yards of linen, but they can never express the quantity of their own value. A superficial observation of this fact, namely that in the equation of value, the equivalent figures exclusively as a simple quantity of some article, of some use value, has misled Bailey, as also many others, both before and after him, into seeing in the expression of value merely a quantitative relation. The truth being that when a commodity acts as equivalent, no quantitative determination of its value is expressed. The first peculiarity that strikes us in, concerning, in considering the form of the equivalent is this. Use value becomes the form of manifestation, the phenomenal form of its opposite, value. The bodily form of the commodity becomes its value form, but mark well that this quid pro quo exists in the case of any commodity B, only when some other commodity A enters into a value relation with it, and then only within the limits of this relation. Since no commodity can stand in the relation of equivalent to itself, and thus turn its own bodily shape into the equivalent of its own value, every commodity is compelled to choose some other commodity for its equivalent, and to accept the use value, that is to say, the bodily shape of that other commodity, as the form of its own value. One of the measures that we apply to commodities as material substances, as use values, will serve to illustrate this point. A sugar loaf being a body is heavy, and therefore has weight. But we can neither see nor touch this weight. We then take various pieces of iron whose weight has been determined beforehand. The iron as iron is no more the form of manifestation of weight than is the sugar loaf. Nevertheless, in order to express the sugar loaf as so much weight, 
we put it into a weight relation with the iron. In this relation, the iron officiates as a body representing nothing but weight. A certain quantity of iron therefore serves as the measure of the weight of the sugar and represents, in relation to the sugar loaf, weight embodied, the form of manifestation of weight. This part is played by the iron only within this relation into which the sugar, or any other body whose weight has to be determined, enters with the iron. Were they not both heavy, they could not enter into this relation, and the one could, not, could therefore not serve as the expression of the weight of the other. When we throw both into the scales, we see in reality that as weight they are both the same, and that, therefore, when taken in proper proportions, they have the same weight. Just as the substance iron, as a measure of weight, represents in relation to the sugar loaf weight alone, so in our expression of value, the material object, coat, in relation to the linen, represents value alone. Here, however, the analogy ceases. The iron, in the expression of the weight of the sugar loaf, represents a natural property common to both bodies, namely their weight, but the coat, in the expression of value of the linen, represents a non-natural property of both, something purely social, namely their value. Since the relative form of value of a commodity, the linen, for example, expresses the value of that commodity as being something wholly different from its substance and properties, as being, for instance, coat-like, we see that this expression itself indicates that some social relation lies at the bottom of it. With the equivalent form, it is just the contrary. The very essence of this form is that the material commodity itself, the coat, just as it is, expresses value and is endowed with the form of value by nature itself. Of course, this holds good only so long as the value relation exists, in which the coat stands in the position of equivalent to the linen. Since, however, the properties of a thing are not the result of its, position, of its relations to other things, but only manifest themselves in relations, the coat seems to be endowed with its equivalent form, its property of being directly exchangeable just as much by nature as it is endowed with the property of being heavy, or the capacity to keep us warm. Hence, the enigmatical character of the equivalent form which escapes the notice of the bourgeois political economist until this form, completely developed, confronts him in the shape of money. He then seeks to explain away the mystical character of gold and silver by substituting for them less dazzling commodities and by reciting with ever-renewed satisfaction the catalogue of all possible commodities which at one time or another have played the part of equivalent. He has not the least suspicion that the most simple expression of value, such as 20 yards of linen equals one coat, already propounds the riddle of the equivalent form for our solution. The body of the commodity that serves as the equivalent figures as the materialization of human labor in the abstract, and is at the same time the product of some specifically useful concrete labor. This concrete labor becomes, therefore, the medium for expressing abstract human labor. If, on the one hand, the coat ranks as nothing but the embodiment of abstract human labor, so, on the other hand, the tailoring which is actually embodied in it counts as nothing but the form under which that abstract labor is realized. In the expression of value of the linen, the form under which that abstract labor is... In the expression of value of the linen, the utility of the tailoring consists not in making clothes, but in making an object which we at once recognize to be value, and therefore to be a congelation of labor, but of labor indistinguishable from that realized in the value of the linen. In order to act as such a mirror of value, the labor of tailoring must reflect nothing besides its own abstract quality of being human labor generally.
In tailoring, as well as in weaving, human labor power is expended. Both, therefore, possess the general property of being human labor, and may, therefore, in certain cases, such as in the production of value, have to be considered under this aspect alone. There is nothing mysterious in this. But in the expression of value, there is a complete turn of the tables. For instance, how is the fact to be expressed that weaving creates the value of the linen, not by virtue of being weaving as such, but by reason of its general property of being human labor? Simply by opposing to weaving that other particular form of concrete labor, in this instance tailoring, which produces the equivalent of the product of weaving. Just as the coat in its bodily form became a direct expression of value, so now does tailoring a concrete form of labor appear as the direct and palpable embodiment of human labor generally. Hence, the second peculiarity of the equivalent form is that concrete labor becomes the form under which its opposite, abstract human labor, manifests itself. But because this concrete labor, tailoring in our case, ranks as, and is directly identified with, undifferentiated human labor, it also ranks as identical with any other sort of labor, and therefore with that embodied in the linen. Consequently, although, like all other commodity-producing labor, it is the labor of private individuals, yet, at the same time, it ranks as labor directly social in its character. This is the reason why it results in a product directly exchangeable with other commodities. We have, then, a third peculiarity of the equivalent form. Namely, that the labor of private individuals takes the form of its op opposite, labor directly social in its form. The two latter peculiarities of the equivalent form will become more intelligible if we go back to the great thinker who was the first to analyze so many forms, whether of thought, society, or nature, and amongst them also the form of value. I mean, Aristotle. In the first place, he clearly enunciates that the money form of commodities is only the further development of the simple form of value, i.e., of the expression of the value of one commodity and some other commodity taken at random. For he says, five beds equals one house is not to be distinguished from five beds equals so much money. He further sees that the value relation which gives rise to this expression makes it necessary that the house should qualitatively be made the equal of the bed, and that without, without such an equalization, these two clearly different things could not be compared with each other as commensurable quantities. Exchange, he says, cannot take place without equality, and equality not without commensurability. Here, however, he comes to a stop, and gives up the further analysis of the form of value. It is, however, in reality impossible that such unlike things can be commensurable, i.e., qualitatively equal. Such an equalization can only be something foreign to their real nature, consequently only a makeshift for practical purposes. Aristotle, therefore, himself tells us what barred the way to his further analysis. It was the absence of any concept of value. What is that equal something, that common substance which admits of the value of the beds being expressed by a house? Such a thing, in truth, cannot exist, says Aristotle. And why not? Compared with the beds, the house does represent something equal to them, insofar as it represents what is really equal, both in the beds and the house, and that is human labor. There was, however, an important fact which prevented Aristotle from seeing that to attribute value to, a con to commodities is merely a mode of expressing all labor as equal human labor, and consequently as labor of equal quality. 
Greek society was founded upon slavery and had, therefore, for its natural basis, the inequality of men and of their labor powers. The secret of the expression of value, namely, that all kinds of labor are equal and equivalent because, and so far as they are human labor in general, cannot be deciphered until the notion of human equality has already acquired the fixity of a popular prejudice. This, however, is possible only in a society in which the great mass of the produce of labor takes the form of commodities, in which, consequently, the dominant relation between man and man is that of owners of commodities. The brilliancy of Aristotle's genius is shown by this alone, that he discovered in the expression of the value of commodities a relation of equality. The peculiar conditions of the society in which he lived alone prevented him from discovering that what, in truth, was at the bottom of this equality. Sub-subsection 4. The elementary form of value considered as a whole. The elementary form of value of a commodity is contained in the equation expressing its value relation to another commodity of a different kind, or in its exchange relation to the same. The value of commodity A is qualitatively expressed by the fact that commodity B is directly exchangeable with it. Its value is quantitatively expressed by the fact that a definite quantity of B is exchangeable with a definite quantity of A. In other words, the value of a commodity obtains independent and definite expression by taking the form of exchange value. When, at the beginning of this chapter, we said in common parlance that a commodity is both a use value and an exchange value, we were, accurately speaking, wrong. A commodity is a use value or object of utility and a value. It manifests itself as this twofold thing that it is this twofold thing that it is as soon as its value assumes an independent form, these the form of exchange value. It never assumes this form when isolated, but only when placed in a value or exchange relation with another commodity of a different kind. When once we know this, such a mode of expression does no harm. It simply serves as an abbreviation. Our analysis has shown that the form or expression of the value of a commodity originates in the nature of value, and not that value and its magnitude originate in the mode of their expression as exchange value. This, however, is the delusion as well of the mercantilists and their recent revivers, Ferrier, Ganil, and others, and also of their antipodes, the modern bagmen of free trade, such as Bastia. The mercantilists lay special stress on the qualitative aspect of the expression of value, and consequently on the equivalent form of commodities, which attains its full perfection in money. The modern hawkers of free trade, who must get rid of their article at any price, on the other hand, lay most stress on the quantitative aspect of the relative form of value. For them, there consequently exists neither value nor magnitude of value anywhere except in its expression by means of the exchange relation of commodities. That is, in the daily list of prices current. McLeod, who has taken upon himself to dress up the confused ideas of Lombard Street in the most learned finery, is a successful cross between the superstitious mercantilists and the enlightened free-trade bagmen. A close scrutiny of the expression of the value of A in terms of B, contained in the equation expressing the value relation of A to B, has shown us that Within that relation, the bodily form of A figures only as a use value. The bodily form of B only as the form or aspect of value. The 
opposition or contrast existing internally in each commodity between use value and value is, therefore, made evident externally by two commodities being placed in such a relation to each other that the commodity whose value it is sought to express figures directly as a mere use value, while the commodity in which that value is to be expressed figures directly as mere exchange value. Hence, the elementary form of value of a commodity is the elementary form in which the contrast contained in that commodity between use value and value becomes apparent. Every product of labor is, in all states of society, a use value. But it is only at a definite historical epoch in a society's development that such a product becomes a commodity, viz. at the epoch when the labor spent on the production of the useful article becomes expressed as one of the objective qualities of that article, i.e. as its value. It therefore follows that the elementary value form is also the primitive form under which a product of labor appears historically as a commodity, and that the gradual transformation of such products into commodities proceeds pari passu with the development of the value form. We perceive at first sight the deficiencies of the elementary form of value. It is a mere germ which must undergo a series of metamorphoses before it can ripen into the price form. The expression of the value of commodity A in terms of any other commodity B merely distinguishes the value from the use value of A and therefore places A merely in a relation of exchange with a single different commodity B. But it is still far from expressing A's qualitative equality and quantitative proportionality to all commodities. To the elementary relative value form of a commodity, there corresponds the single equivalent form of one other commodity. Thus, in the relative expression of value of the linen, the coat assumes the form of equivalent, or of being directly exchangeable, only in relation to a single commodity, the linen. Nevertheless, the elementary form of value passes by an easy transition into a more complete form. It is true that, by means of the elementary form, the value of a commodity, A, becomes expressed in terms of one and only one other commodity. But that one may be a commodity of any kind, coat, iron, corn, or anything else. Therefore, according as A is placed in relation with one or the other, we get for one and the same commodity different elementary expressions of value. The number of such possible expressions is limited only by the number of the different kinds of commodities distinct from it. The isolated expression of A's value is therefore convertible into a series prolonged to any length of the different elementary expressions of that value. And we're going to get into that series. This is Danny now. Carlo Marx is dead to the world for this week. We're going to get into that section next week and probably go back to our good old friend, Mr. Spinoza. I hope you all are doing well, however many you are. If you like this, uh, comment on the iTunes page, the Facebook page. Uh, we're still on SoundCloud. Like, subscribe, do all that business. I'm Danny Erickson, and I can be found at Dan Webster E on Twitter. And I don't really have much else. I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving if you're in this country. If you're not in this country, I hope last Thursday was nice for you and that you had a good meal with friends, as I hope is true of every day. But if it feels like a holiday, it's more important because then the likelihood that not being with friends or not having nice food with friends will feel harder 
and you'll feel sad in a way that you don't need to. But we're just completely understandable. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week. It's bedtime now for me, and... Well... That's all. Good night!